Turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 1. This will be the third sermon in the book of Deuteronomy as we, Lord willing, make our way uh, in further into this awesome book from the Word of God. Sometimes the hardest part of sermon prep is making application from the text, especially Old Testament passages. But this week is easy. This week is easy. And it's re- easy for two reasons. One is because this text is actually a sermon. It's already a sermon to God's people. The book of Deuteronomy is a book of sermons, three sermons, from Moses to God's people. Ryan pointed this out previously, but I want you to look at verse 1 in the book of Deuteronomy, how it starts out. It says, these are the words of Moses. These are the words that Moses spoke to all of Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. And so I want you to get that picture in your mind. Moses is preaching a sermon. For 39 years and 11 months, these people have been led through the wilderness by God. Millions of people now are near the Jordan, right on the doorstep of the promised land. All their parents are dead. That pillar of cloud and fire is still over their head. Manna is still raining down every morning. And Moses steps into the pulpit and he points to the promised land and he preaches this sermon. That's why making application is easy. It's a sermon. And so whatever application Moses is making is the application we should be taking. The second reason it, it's easy is because this sermon application is timeless. And what I mean by that is it's not just for them. It's not just for the original hearers. This sermon is for everybody. This sermon is for everybody in every generation. Now, how do I know that? I know that because this part of this sermon has been re-preached multiple times in the Bible, including the New Testament. In Psalm 95, Psalm 106, Isaiah 63, Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, and in the book of Jude. And the application is always the same. The sermon says, look at God's faithfulness. Look at Israel's rebellion. Look at their unbelief. Man, look at their hard hearts and look at God's wrath. But don't forget to stop looking, don't stop looking at God's promises. Look at yourself. Examine yourself. Examine your heart. Beware, brothers, of unbelief. 
Beware of your heart growing cold, growing hard in unbelief. I can't say it better than the preacher in the book of Hebrews. He said, today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. And this is an exhortation to Christians. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, take care today how you hear God's word. The writer of Hebrews says, take care, brothers, lest there be in you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So let's pray to that end. Father, I ask this, Lord, I ask for your help. We, as your people, we ask for your help that by the power of your word, by by the power of this real example in redemptive history, by the power of your Holy Spirit, expose unbelief and kill it. Lord, make us a faithful people. Root out discontentment. Don't let our hearts grow cold. Don't let our hearts harden. Don't let us ever get over your amazing grace. Cause us to see what you have done for us. Cause us to see your faithfulness. Great, great, great is your faithfulness, Lord. Show us that from your word. Edify your people in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, read with me. This is a long passage, and we're going to take it in pieces. So we're going to take the first two paragraphs together. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 19, Moses preaching says, Then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw, on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea, and I said to you, you have come to the hill of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, look, the Lord has set the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you came near me and said, Let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. The thing seemed good to me, and I took twelve men from you, one man from each tribe, and they turned and went up into the hill country, and came to the valley of Eskol and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Yet 
you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord our God. And you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, the people are greater and taller than we are. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of Anakin there. Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord our, our God, the Lord your God who goes before you, he himself will fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you have seen, you have seen with your eyes, you've seen the Lord your God carried you. He carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet, in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God. You didn't believe. You didn't believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and in the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. And so, from this text, I want you to see six exhortations from Moses' Sermon of Remembrance. He's calling them to remember. Remember their fathers and remember these things. So from these first two paragraphs, I want you to see the first two exhortations. One is to remember God's faithfulness. And the other is to remember Israel's rebellion. And then we'll take the next four exhortations, one section at a time, in the second half of the text where we'll look at God's wrath and Israel's hard heart and God's rejection and finally the promise that remains. And along the way, we're going to make lots of application from this sermon. And so look at this first exhortation. Remember God's faithfulness. I was praying this morning and thanking God for his faithfulness and how he called me out of darkness to proclaim his excellencies. And I thought, man, this is, this is an excellency and I want you to hear it. God is faithful. God is faithful. God is so faithful. I want you to remember that. I want you to know it. I want you to experience it. I want, to realize, I want you to realize you've already experienced it. Remember God's faithfulness. God is faithful. He revealed this to Israel back at Mount Sinai when he proclaimed his name. He said, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in what? Steadfast love 
and faithfulness. And this is where it all starts. This is where their fathers failed. They had heard of God's faithfulness and they had seen God's faithfulness and yet they rebelled against him. And Moses is exhorting them to remember God's faithfulness. Remember what God said. Remember what you've seen. Remember what God said. God promised this land to their fathers, Abraham, over 400 years ago. Look back up in verse 8 where he says this. He says, see, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your father, to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember that promise. Remember what God said. He's repeating that here again in verse 21. He's reminding them of this. Now why is it necessary to remind them of this 400-year-old promise? Because here they are. They're standing on the front porch of the promised land again. And Moses is recounting the events that led up to this, the events from 40 years earlier back in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. And look how he does it here in this sermon. Verse 19, he says, talks about them leaving Horeb or Mount Sinai and they came to this place, Kadesh Barnea, on the outskirts of the promised land. In verse 20, he talks about the, the land being a promise. This is where we get this word, the promised land. Verse 21, God says, look, there it is. That thing I promised, there it is. I'm setting it before you. Now go take possession of it. And in verse 22 and 23 and 24, he talks about the spies. With God's blessing, they sent spies out to check the land out. And the spies come back, verse 25, they come back with a good report. They say, it's a good land. It's a good land God's given us. And they come back with a big bunch of awesome fruit and this good report. And in verse 28, reminds us that 10 of those 12 spies scared the people of Israel. When they start talking about how big and tall and tough the Amorites were. And that was 40 years ago. And now, that generation is dead. And their children are here again with that exact promise. With that same command. And with that exact same decision. And the question is, will they believe what God has promised? Would they believe God? I want you to think about that. It's, it's one thing to make a promise. I mean, it's a whole other thing to keep it. We take that for granted because we make promises all the time. But I want you to think about what it takes to keep a promise. Think about everything that has to go right for me to have lunch with you next Thursday at noon. And I'm here. Man, I promise I'm going to be there. And all it takes is one unexpected work bomb, flat tire, and I just broke my promise. 
I can't guarantee anything. And that's just lunch four days from now. God made a bunch of awesome, incredible promises nearly five centuries earlier. And he made these promises to one man, Abraham. He promised that he would make a a great nation, numerous as the stars in the sky. And he would bring this nation into this awesome land with great possessions. But only, this is part of the promise, only after four generations. After four generations sojourned and they were afflicted in another land, oppressed for 400 years. God promised that that would happen. And then God, God promised that he would bring them out with power and with judgment on those who oppressed him. And that he would then bring them in, bring them into that land and destroy everybody in front of them. Think about what you'd have to do to make that happen. First of all, you'd have to be true to your word. You'd have to be trustworthy. You couldn't be flippant with your words or change your mind or lie. In other words, you you would need to be somebody with real impeccable integrity. Somebody really good, first of all. Second, you'd have to be powerful. You'd have to be really powerful. You'd have to be in control of absolutely everything. You'd have to be able to prevent anything or anybody from messing up your plans. In other words, you'd have to be mighty and powerful and sovereign. You'd have to be great. Well, guess what? God is great and God is good. Isn't that what we teach our kids? God is great, he's powerful, and he's good, he's trustworthy. And you know what? That promise God gave to Abraham, Abraham believed it. (laughs) Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. And now, 400, more than 400, almost 500 years later, the literal sons of Abraham are literally looking at the promised land. For the second time. For the second time. And this is what you need to get. This is what you need to get. God's promises here aren't promises anymore. They're realities. They're realities. And God is saying, look. Verse 21. See. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. I did it. Open your eyes. Think about how you got here. Remember what I said. Now remember what your eyes have seen. And man... This, and I want you to remember this, this is a recurring theme in the book of Deuteronomy. Just look at what God has done. Just look at what God's done for you. And this becomes the aggravating factor in Israel's condemnation. And it becomes part of the diagnosis of their real problem. Just look at what God has done for you. See, God has set the land before you. Remember how you got here. Verse 10. God made you as numerous as the stars of heaven against all odds and against all opposition. He did that. 
Verse 27, God brought you out of the land of Egypt. Remember that? Remember how God demonstrated his power over every aspect of creation and over the world's most powerful man, Pharaoh? Remember that? Remember the plagues? Remember the, the river Nile turning to blood? Remember the frogs and the gnats and the locusts and the hailstorms? The darkness so thick you could cut it? Remember that? Remember the Passover? The death of the firstborn in all of Egypt? N never has there been a cry like that. You remember that? Verse 33, you remember how God personally led you out in this massive pillar of cloud and fire for, for 40 years? That one that's still right there, you remember that? See it? Verse 30, remember how God fought for you? How God himself fought for you in Egypt before your eyes, he says. Right before your eyes. You saw their dead bodies. Remember how he split the Red Sea? And you walked across on dry ground, and then he drowned Pharaoh and everybody behind him. Remember that? Remember how God defeated Amalek, the king of the Amorites, the king of Bashan? Remember how God provided for you? Look how God provided for you, verse 31. The Lord your God carried you. As a man carries his son all the way. To where you are right now. God has been carrying you like a little baby. Like his son. Manna from heaven. Water from the rock. 40 years in the desert. And your clothes and shoes didn't wear out. I mean the evidence. Is piled up to heaven. God is faithful. Look. God is not calling Anybody to blind faith. He's saying, open your eyes. That's, that's application number one. Gonna have a lot of these. Application number one, take away for you right here. Look at God's faithfulness in your own life and trust him. Look, even if you're here and you're not a Christian, you have got to admit God has been kind to you. God has been kind to you. If there's anything good in life, I want you to know it has come out of sheer mercy from God. Every good gift comes down from heaven. Well, guess what? That kindness that God has shown you all of your life, even while you rebelled against him, that kindness is meant to lead you to repentance today. And brothers and sisters in Christ, my goodness, you should know God is faithful to you. You need to think about it. You need to remember God's faithfulness to you. You know God has promised to work all things together for good. And guess what? He's already been doing that. Even while you were his enemy. Think of that. How did you get here? How did you get here? How have you made it this far? I can tell you. Moses told you. The Lord carried you. Like a son. And guess what? He will keep carrying you.
all the way to the land. God is faithful. God is faithful. Trust him even when you don't know where you're going. Trust him. Second exhortation of Moses here. Remember Israel's rebellion. Israel had a decision. They had a decision to make. Trust God or turn back. Listen listen to what all they had heard now. God had made a promise. God was now commanding them to go and take possession of that promise. The, The men that they had sent to spy out the land said it was a good land. Two of the twelve, Caleb and Joshua, urged them to go in saying, Come on, the Lord is with us. Moses and Aaron literally fell on their faces and begged them. And most of all, God's demonstrated faithfulness was all around them and right before their eyes. But there was one competing voice. These ten guys who said the Amorites were tough. Who are you going to listen to? Which voice are you going to listen to? You get the answer in the three-letter word in verse 26. Yet. Who are you going to listen to? Yet you would not go up. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. Despite all the testimony in your ears and in your eyes, they listened to the wrong voice. They listened to the voice that doubted God. They were not like their father Abraham. They were like their father Adam. What did Abraham do? He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What did Adam do? He listened to the voice of his wife who listened to the voice of the serpent who questioned God's goodness. When put to the test, Abraham believed God Adam did not. When Israel was tested, they did not believe God. They believed somebody else. Look, make no mistake. This whole thing is about faith. It's about faith. Will you believe God? Will you trust God? It's always been about faith. It's not been about keeping the law. And the problem, as always, is unbelief. Unbelief. If you write in your Bible, circle the three-letter words. Verse 21, see. Verse 26, yet. Verse 32, yet. See what God said. See what God's done. Yet you would not go up. Verse 32, yet in spite of this word, you did not believe. That's it. Unbelief. You did not believe. So take note here. Here's here's an application for us. Look, God tests faith. God tests faith. So which voice are you going to listen to? The Bible makes it clear that God will test your faith with various, sometimes grievous, often fiery trials. Your faith will be tested by God himself. 
And these trials from God are going to do one of two things. One, they're either going to expose unbelief and cause you to rebel against God, or they're going to prove real faith and cause you to trust God even more. One of those two things. Which voice will you listen to in the midst of affliction? Will you trust God's promises? Will you remember his history of demonstrated faithfulness? Or will you turn and rebel against God? That's what they did. This is what they did. And look, not only did they turn away from God, they turned against him. They turned against God. They didn't just sin, they rebelled. Look at what it says, verse 26. They rebelled. They rebelled against the command of the Lord. And I want you to look where this rebellion starts, where the rebellion of unbelief starts. It starts in the heart. It starts in the heart. It starts in the secret place. Look at verse 27. And you murmured in your tents. You see that? Massive rebellion of the nation starts where? In secret. You murmured in your tents. Now here's a quick takeaway from that. God sees that. God sees and hears everything, even the thoughts of your heart. God, don't, don't, don't think God isn't here or see your grumbling. Even when we don't say it out loud, God sees. He sees that sinful discontentment that's starting to sprout over there in the corner of your heart. He sees it before you see it. Man, I've always been gripped by the reality and the magnitude of this reality from Genesis 6. Right before the flood, God says, the Lord saw. Hear what he saw. Hear what he saw. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and he saw that every intention of the thoughts of the heart was on evil continually. My goodness, like, like if you, you just go home and think about that. Listen to what he said. God saw not just the evil that the people were doing, but they, and not just the evil that they had in their head, but God saw the intention of the thought. He saw the intention of the thought, and not just every now and then, not just a glimpse. He saw every intention of every thought, and because of that, he destroyed the earth. Paul says, according to my gospel... God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. That's what's happening here. God sees them murmuring in their tents. Their secret grumbling reveals just how wicked their unbelief has, has become. And their discontentment has now led to an absolute hatred of God. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And this is what happens. This is what unbelief will do. Unbelief, first of all, it will obscure the greatness of God. I want you to see this, how it obscures the greatness of God. Based solely on the word of these ten spies, they were terrified of the Amorites. Look at verse 28. Our brothers have made our hearts melt. The people are greater and taller than we 
and their cities are great and fortified up to heaven. They feared the Amorites more than they feared God. And they hadn't even seen them yet. The blindness of their unbelief is almost ridiculous. Okay, you're this tall, they're that tall. How tall is God? Are their cities fortified enough to, to withstand an assault from God of heaven? Have they forgotten? It's the Amorites we're talking about, the, hill, the hillbillies. Have they forgotten how God dismantled Egypt? Took down the king of all the earth. They also murmured about God not being able to protect their children. See that in verse 39. Listen to what all they're saying. God can't defeat the Amorites. God can't protect their children. God can't do this. God can't do that. Unbelief. This is what unbelief looks like. It manifests itself in a low view of God. Don't fear man or circumstances. Fear God, people. Questions. Here's a couple of questions. Answer this in your heart. Is God the God of heaven and earth? Is God the only one who can call things into existence that don't exist? Isn't he the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power? Isn't he the one who gives life to the dead? Is there anything impossible for God? Then live like that. Do you believe it? Israel's unbelief obscured the greatness of God and the goodness of God. Look what they said about God. Look what they said about God. Total slander and attack on God's character and attack on the intentions of his thoughts, of his heart, an attack on his motives. They perverted his good intentions and made them into bad intentions. All completely opposite of the truth and completely opposite of the evidence that they had seen with their own eyes. Look, they accused God of hatred instead of love. They accused him of meanness instead of kindness. They claimed that this great act of redemption out of Egypt was really just a trick to kill them. Look in verse 27. Look at all that in verse 27. Because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. The one who had redeemed them out of bondage by the blood of a lamb and carried them like a son, they now accused of hating them and plotting to kill them. That is wicked stuff. And it makes God mad. Rightly so. Look at the third exhortation Moses gives here. Remember God's wrath. Remember God's wrath. Verse 34. And the Lord heard your words and was angered. And he swore. He swore in his wrath. Not one 
of these men, of this evil generation, shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. And so here we go. Israel's faithless murmuring and slander makes God really mad, and rightly so. Just to think about it, like, you ever tried to help somebody, been kind to them, and then they turn on you? Or, or, or somebody that you love betray you, slander you? Did that make you mad? Well, how much more God, the one that is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The Lord heard your words, and he was angry, and he swore. He swore not one is going to see the land. Now you think about it. Here we are with a promise again. God's making a promise. He's swearing an oath. God will keep his promises. And here's, the, here's what he swore. Not one will enter the land. Except for Caleb and Joshua who believed. So here they are on the doorstep of the promised land and God slams the door shut. Slams the door in their face. And you see back in Numbers 14 when this happens, the Israel's been grumbling. They're saying, oh, that we had died in the wilderness. It's so dramatic. Oh, that we had died in the wilderness. And you better watch your words. Because God says, okay, you despise the land that much, have it your way. What you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead body shall fall in the wilderness. Not one shall come into the land. This is the judgment. This is the judgment. God banished the unbelievers from the promised land forever. God condemned the two, two, two pieces of this judgment. He banished them from the land forever, and he condemned the unbelievers to death in the wilderness. And it started immediately. Those ten guys that brought that report about the big, tall, bad Amorites, they died immediately. And so it began. God said, and it was so. God swore in his wrath they would, they would die and not enter his rest, and it was so. And so here's the takeaway. Beware of unbelief. God will punish unbelief with eternal exile and death. Man, this is the, this is the lesson here. This is the great exhortation in this sermon and every sermon that has ever pointed back to this moment, this unbelief in the wilderness, beware of unbelief. Take care, brothers, lest there be in you any evil, unbelieving heart that leads you to fall away from the living God like they did. That's, that's what Hebrews is talking about. Everybody familiar with John 3.16? Not many people are familiar with the sentences that come right after that, but it says, whoever believes in the Son of God is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. Unbelief is damning. This is, what we're, this is the picture here. This is what's being foreshadowed in the judgment of Israel. Exiled from the promised land, death in the wilderness, pointing to this greater reality, eternal exile from the kingdom of heaven, eternal death in the lake of fire, the second death. So remember God's wrath. Fourth exhortation from Moses' sermon. Remember Israel's hard heart. Look at how Israel responds. God pronounces judgment on them, and look how they respond. 
At first glance, it looks like the right response. But in reality, we're going to see here is a heart hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is what we're going to see here. And it's so hard that it, and you'll see this, their heart, heart has been so hardened by the deceitfulness of sin that they could not believe. They could not rightly obey God. Look at this next passage, verse 41. Right after God pronounces judgment, it says, Then you answered me, We have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord has commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy. You thought it easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, you better go tell them, do not go up and fight. For I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated by your enemies. And so Moses said, and I spoke to you, I told you that, but you know what? You would not listen to but you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. And look at the first thing they said. We have sinned against Yahweh. Good start. <laughs> really good start. Now, don't look. What should come out of their mouth next? We have sinned against the Lord. How about an appeal for mercy and forgiveness based on God's revelation back there at Mount Sinai in Exodus 34. We have sinned against the Lord. Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, be gracious to us. Lord, forgive us of our iniquity, transgression, and sin. Oh, Lord, clear the guilty. Pardon this people, the stiff-necked people. Give us pardon. Forgive us, Lord. We've sinned against you. That's not what they did. Look what they did. They confessed their sin but offered no plea for forgiveness. They confessed their sin, and then they went and tried to fix it on their own. Do you see that? We sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight. Is that humility in light of sinning against God? Is that a broken and contrite heart? No, that's presumption. That is arrogant, self-sufficient presumption. God renders judgment and says, turn and go back into the wilderness. And they say, no, we're going to obey you now. We're going to go fight. And God says, no. Again, no. Look at verse 42. Say to them, don't, don't you go up and fight. I am not in your midst. Guess what? They did not listen again. And they went anyway. Verse 43. You would not listen. You would not listen, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up to the hill country. Unbelief in God and belief in self, that's what's going on here. They did not believe God, but they presumptuously believed in themselves. God says, I will not be with you. I will not help you. You will be defeated. They go anyway means they didn't believe God understand the problem what's, what's underneath this Israel's unbelief is a heart problem a heart problem and I know we're in the Torah here we're in the book of the law but I want you to know something the book of Deuteronomy is as much about the heart as it is about the law and I, I want you to be surprised by that. 
I hope that you have all started reading through the book of Deuteronomy now that we're preaching through it. Pay attention as you read and draw a little heart in your Bible. Every time God talks about the heart, it's going to surprise you. It's going to surprise you. And then towards the end of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 29 and 28, God is going to reveal why they do not believe. He's going to say, to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart. He has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. And then marvelously in chapter 30, a thousand years before the new covenant is even promised in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, God is going to promise to give his people new hearts to love him and to obey him. They don't have it now, though. Several takeaways from this right here. First, this is where unbelief comes from. An unregenerate heart. You must be born again. You must be born again. This is Israel's problem. Deuteronomy proves that. This is humanity's problem, and history proves that. Without a new heart, you cannot and you will not believe. As we'll see here, it doesn't matter how many miracles you see. It doesn't matter how overtly faithful God proves himself to be in your life. It doesn't matter how incredibly kind God has been to you. Without a new heart, you won't see it and you won't believe it. Without a new heart, you cannot and will not see the glory of Christ. Without a new heart, you cannot and will not obey God. You must be born again. That's their problem. And that unregenerate heart is hard, and it gets harder and harder as time goes on. Look, let me just zoom out. Look what's going on here. When they were told to go into the land, they said no. When they were told not to go in the land, they said, no, we're going to go anyway. Just hard-heartedness. Like a kid, you say, go left, and they want to go right. They just know. Second thing I want you to take away from this section is that obedience without the Lord is impossible. They thought they would obey God's command without God's help. Hide that work out. Not too good. We say a lot around here, it's impossible to be a Christian without Christ. It is true. It's impossible to be a Christian without Christ. Without a regenerate heart, without the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, you cannot submit to God's law and you cannot please God. This is the, one of the beautiful realities of the name of Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. God's commandments are not burdensome when he is with us. He tells them, I'm not going to be with you. This is what St. Augustine, or St. Augustine, as I like to say, this is what he meant when he says, Lord, Command what you will and grant what you command. Lord, help me obey. Help me obey. Third takeaway, obedience that's not from a heart of faith is sin. Get that. Obedience not from a heart of faith is sin. 
look around. We, is, we live in a wicked world, yes. But, man, there's all kinds of good and moral people that we see out there that are doing the right thing. It's a very moral and religious people. But I want you to note this. Hell will be full of moral people who have done many good works. But apart from Jesus Christ, all our righteous deeds are but filthy rags. Paul says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Obedience. You can obey all you want. If it's not from a heart of faith, it's sin. Fourth takeaway from this section. Genuine repentance is more than confession of sin and it's more than a change of heart or change of mind. Now, real repentance does require a confession of sin. It does require a change of mind, but it also requires a move of faith toward God. So repentance without faith is not repentance. You must turn from sin to God. Israel turned from sin to themselves. They turned from sin to obedience, skipped right over faith and forgiveness. Last takeaway from this section. Delayed obedience is sin that hardens the heart. James says, knowing the right thing to do and not doing it is sin. Then coming back around and trying to obey it later does not fix that sin. And delayed obedience only works to harden your heart. This is why the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, don't you harden your heart. Today, don't you delay. God says, come, you come. God says, go, you go. If God says, stop, you stop. When? Today. Right now. Right here, today. Don't wait. The longer you wait, the more you resist, the harder your heart becomes and the less you're going to hear his voice. Until one day, God gives you up. Just like he did this people. God gave them up. Fifth exhortation from the sermon. Remember God's rejection. Remember God's rejection. Just as God promised, Israel was beaten down by the Amorites. And what did they do? Israel came back weeping before the Lord, but it was too late. Look at that in the text, verse 45. And you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen. The Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. Here's another three-letter word to circle in this text, but... They came back weeping, and this word's kind of strong here, weeping, sobbing, crying out to the Lord. But the Lord did not listen. Man, what a frightful picture. What a terrifying place to find yourself in. Makes me think about Judgment Day, when all the mercy for sinners is going to come to an end. And there's going to be many on that day going to cry out in panic. Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do this? And the Lord will not listen. He won't listen. This is, this is all he's going to say. Depart from me, 
you workers of iniquity. Depart from me, you stiff-necked, disobedient people. Unbelieving, rebellious people. Israel did not listen to the Lord, and the Lord finally stopped listening to them. Don't miss this parallel in Moses' sermon here, verses 43 and 45. I spoke to you and you would not listen. Guess what? You came and wept before me and I didn't listen. You didn't listen to me. I ain't going to listen to you no more. Ultimate rejection. When God stops listening, when God gives you up, when God pronounces this final judgment on you, back in Numbers 14, when he says this back in Numbers 14, this is what he says. Listen. None of the men that have seen my glory are going to see the land. None of these men that have put me to the test ten times and not obeyed my voice. Ten times in the wilderness, Israel had grievously sinned against God, and that was it. No more. No more. couple of takeaways. God's patience, God's divine forbearance is incredible, but it has a limit. Hear that. God's patience with you has a limit. When God revealed his name, what did he say? He said, I'm a God, merciful and gracious and slow to anger, right? And, and I'm here to tell you, and I want you to think about it in your own life. You cannot thank God enough for his slowness of anger towards you. You just think back. You can't thank him enough for his slowness of anger to you. How many times have you willingly, knowingly, high-handed rebellion sinned against God? And you knew it and you were doing it anyway. Yet he was slow to anger with you. He did not give you up. He did not take you out. He did not seal your fate forever. And he should have and could have. But praise God, he is slow to anger. But let me, let me let you in on a secret here. God's forbearance is mercy with an expiration date. It has an expiration date. God being slow to anger doesn't mean he's not ever angry. Don't, take, don't miss that. And don't take his patience for granted. God's kindness and patience is meant to lead you to repentance. And Paul says that, that if you presume on that patience, here's what's, what, what that's a sign of. If you presume on the patience of God, that's a sign you got a hard and impenitent heart, just like these people. It's a sign that your heart is hard. And he says every time you presume on God's patience and his kindness, you're doing this. You're storing up more and more wrath for yourself. And guess what? There is a limit, and God will give you up. Repeatedly ignoring God's word, repeatedly ignoring God's kindness may seal your eternal fate. Here's a takeaway. God will not listen to you if you don't listen to him. You ever talk to somebody? who's absolutely convinced that they're saved, and they'll argue with you, they'll fight you over it. 
even though they never read God's word or don't go to church or they don't even try to keep his commands. And sometimes they'll say, well, I pray every day. Sometimes I'll just respond to that. God doesn't hear your prayers. And they'll be shocked. They'll think I'm being arrogant. And then if they'll let me, I'll try to show them this principle in God's word. Like Proverbs 28, if one turns, listen, if one turns away his ear from hearing the law, I don't want to hear this. Even his prayer is an abomination. God says in Proverbs 1, because you have ignored my counsel and we would have none of my reproof, I'm going to laugh when the calamity comes upon you. This is God talking. You ignore me when the trouble comes, when judgment falls, I'm going to ignore you. When distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me but I will not answer. Ignore God, and he will ignore you until judgment day. And on that bad news, let's end on this good news. This last exhortation, remember God's promise. So here's a question. Did Israel's rebellion cancel the promise? No, not at all. Look at verse 34. And the Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore, Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it. And to him and to his children I will give the land on which he is trodden because he has wholly, with a W, wholly followed the Lord. Even with me, Moses says, the Lord was angry on your account and said, you shall not go in. Joshua, the son of Nun who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And as for your little ones, who you said would become prey, and your children who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there. And to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. Israel's unfaithfulness and unbelief did not change God at all. Didn't change his faithfulness, didn't change his promise at all. The promise of entering still remains for those who believe. Then and now. The promise of entering still remains for those who believe. There are only two guys from that generation that entered the land. And that's Caleb and Joshua. The two that spied out the land and still believed God. They were like their father Abraham. They believed God and it was counted to them as righteous. Look at the description of Caleb. Verse 36. Caleb shall see it. Why? Because he has wholly followed the Lord. Back in Numbers 14, it says, because he has a different spirit, because he has followed me fully. What a description. What a description. You got Caleb, who has a different spirit, and who has followed the Lord wholly, fully. You got Joshua who's going to replace Moses and cause Israel to inherit the promise. And then you got all those that are going to follow Joshua and trust the Lord. They are going to enter the land. 
So the promise still remains. And I want you to realize, if you don't already, that this whole story points to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what chapter 3 and chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews is all about. It's about this story. And he says in chapter 4, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it came to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened, like Caleb and Joshua. This whole story points to a greater land a greater rest, a greater Joshua, a greater shepherd who will most certainly deliver God's people into their promised inheritance. At the end of the day here, Moses proves he is not the ultimate Savior. He's being shut out of the land because of one flash of anger. And man, what does that show us? It shows us the righteousness of God it shows us the righteous requirement of the law, and it proves that nobody is going to reach the promised land through the law. Nobody. But Moses does foreshadow this greater mediator who will die on account of the sins of his people. And as Moses gives way to Joshua, he points to a greater Joshua who will cause, it says, cause God's people to inherit the land. His name is Jesus the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Caleb, Caleb exemplifies us. Caleb exemplifies the true people of God. And he shows, his life and his reward shows that it's only faith and faithfulness to the end that is rewarded. It shows that we must have a different spirit. It shows that we must follow the Lord wholly all the way. In other words, trust him all the way to the end. And Caleb and his children, i.e. those who share the faith of Caleb and share the faith of Abraham, they will inherit the land. So, closing application. Two things. One, remember this. God always has a remnant. God has a remnant in every evil generation. Do not get discouraged when you look around at the rampant wickedness in this land. Do not get discouraged when you see thousands of so-called churches that are nothing more than dressed up versions of the world. Do not get discouraged. The promise still remains. The church is fine. And God still has his thousands who has not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, our job here is to do what? Keep praying and keep preaching. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Last takeaway, brothers and sisters in Christ, set your eyes on the promise. Set your eyes on the promise and hold your confidence to the end. God says, see, I have set the land before you. Set your eyes on the greater rest, eternal life to come. 
Set your eyes on the greater land, that eternal city whose builder and maker is God. Set your eyes on the greater Yeshua, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Yahweh in the flesh, who has already fought for us. He's already defeated all of our greatest enemies, and we didn't do a thing. And like the pillar of cloud and fire, Christ has gone before us to seek out a place to pitch our tents and show us the way. He said that himself in John 14. I go and prepare a place for you and I will come again and I'm going to take you to myself that you may be with me and you know the way where I'm going. I am the way. I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Like Caleb, who fully followed, followed the Lord through 40 years through this great and terrifying wilderness, Caleb was faithful to the end. Set your eyes on the promise that remains and hold your confidence to the end. Hold fast, like Jesus says. Be faithful. Be faithful unto death. This is Jesus saying this. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. What a day that will be. Brothers and sisters, beware of unbelief and be faithful unto death. Let's pray.